intriguing aspect of just being human is our need for stories. Part of what my husband Joel does for a living is to analyze workers' comp data for his clients. And he's discovered that while it's easy to run a lot of reports that slice and dice the data in ways that seem impressive, those reports are virtually meaningless unless you can discover the stories that the data is telling. If you can wring one true story from 10,000 points of data, you have a good chance of helping your client solve their problems. Stories inform how we understand our lives, the people around us, and the world we live in. There's more, though. As Christians, we believe that people are designed to share a story with God. Not only were we put into a creation that speaks day and night about our creator, but the God who created us became incarnate to enter our story and to invite us into his story. True stories connect us with creation, they connect us with one another, and they connect us with God. Today's story in Exodus is one of these stories. This is a truly epic tale. There are a lot of really cool stories in the Old Testament. Some of them are pretty bizarre. Um, but of all of the stories in the Old Testament that foretell the gospel story, this one may be the granddaddy of them all. Both in the overarching narrative and in so many tiny details, you can draw a straight line from the events of the Passover and Exodus that we're reading about here right through the gospel story of Jesus on into the spiritual realities that define you and me as God's people. And we celebrate this in the Eucharist every week. The points of connection are so numerous and so telling, you might even begin to suspect that the Bible is not just a collection of ancient texts written by many different authors living in many different places and times. It is that, but in another and very real sense, the whole of Scripture tells us one story inspired by God himself. Scholars think that Exodus was completed about six centuries before a man named Jesus even appeared on the scene. And yet, when you take the details of the life of Jesus, particularly during Holy Week from the Last Supper through the resurrection, and lay it over the stories in the Old Testament, it's incredible to see how the patterns of these stories repeat and overlap and complement and inform one another. The story of Exodus is this kind of story, a story designed by God to tell the tale of a freedom feast that began thousands of years ago and which will have no end. One of the first things to notice is at this point in the book of Exodus, we are 12 chapters into one of the most exciting narrative stretches of the Old Testament. And up until now, our author has given us nonstop action. Well, there's a brief detour into some kind of boring genealogy in chapter 6, but other than that, this is a pretty intense ride, journeying with Moses and the Israelites as they find themselves at the tail end of 430 years on foreign soil, Much of those year, many of those years spent in harsh slavery. God now has shown up with some freaky signs and wonders and grand promises now to free his people. 
he has been applying pressure on the ruler of the land, Pharaoh, with an escalating series of dreadful and distressing plagues. So far, Pharaoh has maintained his grip on the slave nation of Israel, but it's also true that these plagues, individually and collectively, are destabilizing the whole nation. As you may recall, these plagues are not random. Jehovah God, the God of Israel, has been calmly and systematically discrediting the gods of Egypt, one after another. These are gods that hold out the promise of good things, a healthy economy, numerous children and livestock, rain for crops, but they're shown to be that they cannot follow through. In a disenchanted age, truly, it is part of God's severe mercy to lead his people through a process of disillusionment, of coming to understand that the things that we've been depending on for life and flourishing will ultimately betray us. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that God is in the business of shaking that which can be shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In his mercy, God is shaking up the nation of Egypt to draw faith away from that which is false and temporal and draw faith toward that which is true and eternal. The foundations of the civilization of Egypt are being rocked. The plagues are mounting in intensity and severity. Things are building toward a breaking point. We are on the brink now of the final and most awful plague. And then... And then we cut to commercial. Well, that's a joke. It's not really commercial. It's even more boring than a commercial. If you look at the beginning of chapter 12, it's in high contrast to the preceding chapters. It's like going from an action sequence to an instruction manual on how to conduct religious ceremonies. Book ending the devastating final plague of the killing of the firstborn sons, and immediately before we get to the chase scene out of Egypt, God hits the pause button on the action to discuss a new liturgical calendar, among other things. Now, there is an urgent need to communicate instructions about how the firstborn of the Israelites can avoid death. Technically, that is an important part of the plot. But a lot of this information is quite explicitly just unpacking how this night will be commemorated for millennia into the future. The Freedom Feast is part of the action of the story, but just as importantly, the Freedom Feast will define God's people forever. And Moses stops to carefully record God's instructions for observing three ceremonial rites, the Passover, the consecration of the firstborn, and the feast of unleavened bread. All three ceremonies connect Israel to the Savior who is yet to come, and these ceremonies connect them with generations of believers yet to be born, including you and me. This terrifying but beautiful thing that God is about to do on behalf of the Israelites, delivering them out of the house of slavery by his strong hand, it's not just their story, it's our story. Everyone who has been disillusioned and let down by the gods of this age 
and chooses to put his or her trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has, in fact, been delivered out of the house of slavery with a strong hand. This reality is celebrated each week in the Freedom Feast. When we celebrate the Eucharist, God's Freedom Feast, what are we celebrating? I've made it as simple to remember as I was able to um, in the title of the sermon. Um, we celebrate our freedom by observing a feast. You might remember what God declared as his intention for his people way back in chapter 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So these are twin goals that the Lord is declaring. He desired and enacted our redemption, our freedom, and he desired and enacted an invitation for us, symbolized in a feast, freedom expressed through feasting. He has delivered us with a strong hand from the house of slavery, and he has gathered us to himself to be his own people. It's not just that we can stop being slaves now. It's that we have become sons and daughters, feasting at the table of our father beside our elder brother. When we do the creative work of understanding how the story of the Israelites in the Exodus is also our own story, we have to understand what it means to be delivered from the house of slavery. We might think of being delivered from various forces that oppress us, represented by people or institutions that have power over us. The government, the police, maybe our parents, maybe a bad boss. Or we might imagine being freed from a bad situation, a painful illness, the chronic inability to pay all of our bills, a lawsuit. Our first task, though, is to understand that there is a difference between slavery and suffering. Slavery involves suffering, and in fact, the freedom that God affected for the Israelites did involve literal freedom from literal slaveholders. But if you remember anything about what happens um, following the flight from Egypt, if you remember what's ahead for the Israelites, you will recall that there was plenty of suffering still ahead. And there's plenty of sin, too. If anything, the sinful disposition of the Israelites seems to get more scope for expression after they leave Egypt. Now, why is that? If deliverance from the house of slavery, which is a phrase that is used four times in today's passage, if it doesn't mean freedom from suffering or even freedom from sin, what can it mean? I think that part of what's happening here is something that happens almost everywhere in the Christian life. In the same way that our story can be understood as part of the Israelite story, which is part of Christ's story, our freedom from the house of slavery is a cosmic event that has happened, is happening, and is yet to happen in its fullness. This means that the freedom that God offers us 
is so comprehensive that it cannot be viewed all at once from any one moment in time. The freedom purchased for us by God's mighty hand has been accomplished once for all in the sacrifice of Christ. It is being expressed in the current moment, and yet it will not be fully realized until the end of time. God does offer us freedom from sin. He offers us freedom from slavery to false gods. He offers freedom from death and freedom from the fallen human condition. But the primary expressed reality of this freedom is not what we have been freed from, but what we have been freed for. We have been freed for intimacy with God. The Passover feast of the Israelites made it possible for God to come close without causing human death for those who put their faith in the blood of the Lamb. The house of slavery that you and I and the Egyptians and the Israelites and everyone born into this world all inhabit together is a state of being where we are unable to draw near to our blessed and loving creator. And he is unable to draw near to us due to the vast differences in our nature. This is not so much about God's hatred of sin or his anger over sin. Those are both valid expressions of the same reality, but they don't really get at the heart of the matter, which is even more basic. This is more of what you might call an existential dilemma. God loves us, but he cannot get close to us without causing our death. It's a little like looking directly at the sun. If you look directly at the sun for as few as two minutes, you can literally become blind. Not because the sun is mad at you and is punishing you, but because human flesh is incapable of withstanding the glory of intense light for that long. And it's the same way with God. A holy God and a sinful people cannot come together and commune without terrible things happening unless something is done. This is an unbelievably tragic consequence of the fall. God loves sinful people. He loves us. From the beginning of time, he has provided for us and cared for us and communicated his love for us. God is simply in his nature glorious. The purity of his goodness and his holiness and his beauty is so intense that we can't gaze on him without destruction, even when we want to. There is a sense in which the tenth plague is the plague of the holy presence of God. This is the only plague where Moses and Aaron did not make an appearance before Pharaoh, and it's the only one where God himself is described as coming to pass through the land. This means death. The firstborn of all people and all, all animals belong to God in a way similar to the way that the first 10% of our money is given to God. When we offer the, just the first 10% of our income to God, we are acknowledging that we understand that our whole income belongs to God. And so it was that the life of the firstborn of every family had to be redeemed. The firstborn of the family represents the whole family, which is unable to withstand the holy presence of God. 
This is a truly unbearable situation. But God found a way. His love is not only pure and holy, it is creative. It is endlessly patient. It is unstoppable. He found a way not only to deliver us, but also to make us his own. But we're getting ahead of the story a little bit here. Let's try to unpack the concept of the house of slavery a little bit further. And I think maybe looking at um, a different sort of epic tale might help here. Um, Back in the spring of 2010, there was a terrible environmental disaster originating with a British-owned company that was operating in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana. And I'm referring to the Deepwater Horizon BP oil spill, which probably many of you remember. It's still the largest marine oil spill in the history of the petroleum industry. 11 people were killed in the initial explosion on April 10. And then over the next 162 days, the world watched as over 210 million U.S. gallons of crude oil pumped right out into the ocean. That was a long summer, waiting to see how long it would be until that thing got fixed. It was an epic disaster, and not just because of the magnitude of the spill, but because it was richly symbolic of the dilemma of the fallen human condition. Accidents happen, But this was not just an accident. BP was ultimately found guilty of criminal charges that included manslaughter, gross negligence, reckless conduct, and lying to Congress. There were no heroes in this story, only greedy human beings corrupting both big business and big government to serve their short-sighted ends. Now, it felt cathartic to blame the major villains of the tale. But that only made it that much more painful to realize that my own comfort and productivity are built upon a foundation of cheap and convenient petroleum-based products. You might even say that convenience and cheap consumer goods are a couple of the gods that I bow down to. Perhaps you pay homage to these gods in your own home as well. I mean, I still will try to avoid gassing up my car at a BP station, but that's a pretty empty gesture, seeing as I continue to use shampoo and toothpaste. I line my garbage cans with plastic bags. I drive on asphalt roads. I own a computer and a smartphone. In my house, you will find a refrigerator and a television screen screen, and carpet and so on and so on. Some of these items could be manufactured without plastic. Most aren't, and some can't be. This reality distresses me when I allow myself to think about it. No one is born free of the taint of sin and none of us can struggle free, no matter how hard we try. We are all living in a house of slavery, in desperate need of a redemption that we are helpless to effect for ourselves. Is that your reality also? Do you also carry an awareness 
of your own culpability and shame with you? I think most of us do. It might be buried way down deep below the ocean floor, or maybe it bubbles up just below the surface. But regardless of our relative success or failure in overcoming personal sins, there is no avoiding the reality that sooner or later, the thick, black, sticky, oozy emblem of our sin will spread throughout our surroundings and contaminate whatever it touches. This is a story as old as Adam and Eve, and it is as current as this morning's news feed. The prophet Isaiah cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. David Attenborough, a TV naturalist who narrates really stunningly beautiful BBC nature documentaries, has this to say about humanity. He says, human beings are a plague on the earth. That is his real opinion, and it's painful to hear because there are times when we fear that that's true. Maybe God doesn't need to send special plagues. Maybe we ourselves are filthy, like boil, flies, and lice. It is a devastating judgment, but it is not the judgment that God makes. Here again from Isaiah, now referencing the Exodus. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I'll say it again. It is every bit as important to see what we have been freed for as what we have been freed from. We have been freed for union with God in Christ by the blood of the Passover lamb. All the tragic filth of our individual and collective lives has been overcome by the pure blood of the lamb. At first, symbolically through the celebration of the Passover, and ultimately and finally through the sacrifice of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When God broke in on the dramatic events of the night of the Exodus, he gave carefully detailed instructions for the sacrifice of the lamb. And the, the Israelites were able to protect themselves from the angel of the, of the Lord by smearing the blood of the lamb 
on the lintel and the doorposts of the entry to their homes. Now, this need to indicate the houses of the Israelites is a new twist in the carrying out of the plagues. Bible scholar Alec Motyer notes this as a change in the proceedings. He writes, The story of the six immediately preceding plagues proves that the Lord needed no markers to know where his people were and to exclude them from what was to take place. He knew the boundaries of their land. He could distinguish their cattle from the Egyptians' cattle. He could shelter them from the hailstorm and give them light when Egypt was shrouded in palpable darkness. Such a God has no need of signposts. Therefore, the blood on the doors must have had some other significance. And this is borne out by the fact that it is not when I see you that the Lord will pass over, but when I see the blood. The God of judgment who came to impose a penalty of death justly due, saw the blood and passed over in peace. The children of the Lord did everything, no, the Lord did everything necessary to work out the freedom of his beloved children. And we don't have time to go into all the details, but if you ever have a chance to do a word study on this passage, please note all the ways that this sort of downtrodden, underdog, um, ragtag group of slaves are referred to in military terms. It's subtle, but it's in there in words like hosts or um, uh, terms that can be translated as foot soldiers and certainly plunder. And this is delightfully ironic. The Exodus is a story of a great victory, one with no battle and a mighty plundering without looting. The only thing required of the Israelite children is the same thing that the Father asks of us this morning, participation in his freedom feast. Place all your faith in the protection afforded by the blood of the lamb and eat your meal with your shoes on as a sign that you're ready to flee from the house of slavery. You don't need to continue to fear sin or suffering because the freedom feast is a table set for us in the presence of our enemies. If you know you have availed yourself of the blood of Jesus and trusted in the one who fights on your behalf, you may find yourself sad or perplexed by the circumstances of your life that indicate that you are not completely free, not completely free of sin, not completely free of oppression and injustice, certainly not free of suffering. You may be tempted to ask, like the psalmist reported of the Israelites, can God spread a table in the wilderness? This brings us to a final point of connection with the epic tale of Exodus. Looking at uh, verse 11 in chapter 12. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The first Passover meal is eaten inside the house, but also on the run, so to speak. 
and it is eaten in the shadow of a dark, dark night that was still coming. The Passover commemorated an event that had not happened yet. It was a faith-filled meal. The killing of the firstborn children had not even started. Pharaoh had not yet said he would let them go. Their neighbors had not yet urged them to get out. But the Israelites got ready in advance. They put on their shoes for supper, even though it was not considered polite to wear your shoes inside the house. They ate standing up with their coats on and their car keys in their hands, so to speak. That's the staff. Um, they had already painted their doorways with the blood, and they ate that very first freedom feast the night before they were freed from Egypt. In this way, they declared with their lives their faith in the deliverance of the Lord that was yet to be fully experienced. We can think, too, of the Last Supper when the Eucharist as we know it today was instituted. This also was a meal shared in the shadow of coming death, the night before the darkest day in history. And the disciples knew even less about what was to come than the Israelites on the night of the Exodus, but it didn't matter. Jesus knew. He knew that although his hour, the hour of suffering, the hour of the death of the firstborn Son of God was drawing nigh, he also knew that the resurrection would swiftly and surely follow, bringing redemption and intimate fellowship and feasting with a holy God in its wake. And that night was the night he chose to spend around the table with those he loved to the end. Just so, you and I can move in faith-filled obedience to share this freedom feast together as a testimony in our faith in the strong hand of the Lord, even though we are still passing through the same valley, this valley of the shadow of death. His deliverance is that sure. His love is that strong. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.